Imagine uh, you're an astronaut, and uh, you're on a team that's headed for a five-year journey to Mars. And as the rocket uh, finally leaves the Earth's atmosphere, you look over to your fellow astronaut, and you ask, hey, what do you know about Mars? And inside the spacesuit, he shrugs his shoulders and he says, uh, well, I haven't really thought a lot about it. I guess we'll find out when we get there. Might this be the way that we often approach our future with God? Romans chapter 8 and verse 18 reads this way. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed. And the NIV says, in us. Paul writes, I consider, that is, I ponder. I have thought about the present, and I have thought about the future, and I've thought it over very carefully. And as a start, this is what I am inviting us to do today. When Paul says, comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us, the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says more accurately, it should say, our sufferings are not compared with the glory that will be revealed for us. The point is for the glory, the glory of God, for God's kingdom to be fully revealed for us and for the world. Now, in past weeks, I've said that Romans chapter 8 stands at the center of the book of Romans and the center of thought for Paul, and if we might say the center of the Bible. And it's easy to miss then this section because I would say, and N.T. Wright says, that it is the epicenter of the whole Bible. And it's been hiding in plain sight. He says it this way, the New Testament, true to its Old Testament roots, regularly insists that the major central framing question is that of God's purpose of rescue and recreation for the whole world and the entire cosmos. Let's see if we can get at what N.T. Wright is trying to say through this scripture. Now, in describing this glory that will be revealed for us, it is an amazingly hard thing to do, just like it might be to uh, describe Mars. Probably better done by an artist or a writer or a poet, but in this case, let's see what we can do. The scene that Paul describes is, is it's cosmic in scope. And at the same time, while only maybe a philosopher or a theologian could speak to everything that's going on in the cosmos, Paul is at the same time extremely personal because he has some lived experiences that are relevant to this scene. He has this unusual gift of capturing both the macro and the micro. 
And all the while, he addresses the great questions of life. They're all in this section of Scripture, beginning with about 8.17 through 25. He addresses meaning. What are we here for? And freedom. And suffering. And death. The big questions that need to be answered. And what Paul sees as he looks into the future and as he describes what we are reading here as this glory to be revealed for us is not a dream. It's a promise. A promise of an astonished world, astonishing world to come. However, the promise starts with an enormous burden. You see, there is a groaning, the creation, all of creation is groaning. And, and, and this, this language is an echo of the enslavement that the Israelites experienced in Egypt. Remember how they groaned and how they cried out to God and how Pharaoh was the oppressor and he ruled fiercely and he was unforgiving and so the Israelites were discouraged, and it, and it broke them down. Well, in Paul's retelling, in this section of Scripture, who is the oppressor, the oppressive Pharaoh? It is human beings themselves, the human race. People oppress all of God's good creation so that all of creation groans since the fall. You see, sin has wreaked havoc on the whole universe, is Paul's point. From plant to animal, from volcano to earthquake to war, sin is operating viciously and there is this inability of humankind to thrive. Paul is certain that a time is coming when this will end. It will end with what he describes as new creation. And so job number one is for human beings to be liberated from their own sin. And this is what we've been talking about in the last few weeks as we understand the death of Christ and that there is now no more condemnation because of the sacrifice of Christ. So to be liberated from human sin and then to allow the good King Jesus to rule the world. So creation too, all of creation, the entire cosmos can be liberated. You see, the cross and the resurrection of Jesus began this great project to restore the world. So in our text, this picture of all creation suffering and groaning is then joined together with a powerful forward-looking day of new creation. And here's how J.B. Phillips translates verse 19. The whole creation is on tiptoe to see the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own. So then what are all of creation? What are they craning their necks and standing on their tiptoes to see? This needs 
to use Paul's word, consider, our deliberate, considered attention. Let me just lay out a few things that I think Paul sees as he, as he sees this glory that is to come. First of all, that the sons and daughters of God have become like their creator. For, and the text says it specifically, for the children of God to be revealed. In other words, for the children of God to get their act together. We are to be a reflection of the king. And just like Adam and Eve were created to be in the garden as image bearers of their maker, we as new people now in Christ are to be conformed to the, be, to the image of Christ. So the sons and daughters of God have become like their creator. Number two, that there is a renewed creation. See, it's not just human beings, but all of creation. God has no plan to scrap what he has masterfully created. And the creation itself, the text says, will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into freedom. Does that sound like God is going to destroy his world or he's going to recreate it? You see, the Bible uses the word restoration. And so Revelation chapter 21 and verse 5 will, will, will speaks to us and it says, it says, Behold, I am making all things new. Jesus, when he says this, does not say he is making all new things. Restoration means God is making all things new. Salvation in God is not God taking us out of the world to heaven. It is God repairing everything that went wrong with his creation, starting with us. Now, number three, the text says that we have redeemed bodies. And this is spelled out in verse 23, the redemption of our bodies. You see, like Jesus before us, who was resurrected with a new body, our resurrected body will uh, not be like this old one. Thank God. Pained, broken, and hurting. But this new body will be completely redeemed. You've heard the phrase, well, he's just a shadow of his former self. Well, I want to suggest that you are just a shadow of your future self. You will have what the Bible says is an incorruptible physical spiritual body. I know there's a lot to unpack in all of this, but let me continue to move on. If you have questions and we want to dig into this deeper, I certainly would invite that after this message. But number four, what we are to do with our new bodies and our restored creation is still a, a, a great question. And I want to suggest that the, the, this next thought may surprise you. But God's children are to co-rule with God. As a reflection of the maker, 
the children of God are to carry on acts of stewardship and leadership much like the way that Adam and Eve tended the garden. This is the imagery. Uh, but we are to carry on the stewardship of God's creation with Him. We are to be kingdom makers with God in this new creation. You see, even in the future, we'll have satisfying work to do. No wonder that creation is eagerly waiting for the sons and daughters of God to do their job. Well, number five, Jesus Christ reigning as Lord is at the very center of Paul's entire vision. You see, the world will remain messed up or to use a biblical phrase, the nations will rage until Jesus Christ returns to bring his kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. He will return to us and dwell with us and lead us as the king, the good king. So in verse 25, we're encouraged to hope for what we do not see, just like the creation is doing, to, to wait for it with, a, with an eager expectation. The same word is used here as was used earlier. That is that word waiting on tiptoes. Just as the creation is waiting on tiptoes, so are we waiting on tiptoes. So Along with creation, we too wait on tiptoe because we eagerly expect that God is doing something astonishing. Now, by contrast, you might remember that uh, great scene in the movie The Bucket List where uh, Morgan Freeman receives a uh, life philosophy from uh, Edward Cole, played by Jack Nicholson. And in that scene, Cole says, as he's describing his life and his religion, we live, we die, and the wheels on the bus go round and round. Do you ever feel this way? We wonder and we question and we feel caught on the tread of the wheel of the bus and around and around and around we go. And our life, as good as it might be, doesn't seem to have the definitive and clear direction. And our vision of heaven, of the future, of the future with God is so weak, and in many cases so wrong, that we fail to stand on tiptoes with eager expectancy. I want to suggest that this passage pictures a very compelling vision of God's future, and, and you should read it again and again. Read it a hundred times. Read it in ten different translations. It's so nuanced, and there's so much that can be missed, but the links you'll start, you'll begin to see. Discuss this passage with others. Read it with others. Uh, re read some books about this passage. Work to replace 
some of our default, unbiblical, and uncompelling ways that we have pictured heaven and replace it with a vision of a new heaven and a new earth and put this future glory that Paul describes into your own words and into your own images, ones that will touch you and move you emotionally. You see, the better you see God's future, the better you can move your life and your family and your influence in the direction of God's ultimate vision. Now, recently, Don Fitzgerald's nephew, Melanie Sukaran's cousin, a young family man, passed away after a multi-year-long bout with cancer. And as Mel told his story to our Connect group the other day, I was struck again by how our unimaginable at times and unwanted suffering, how our groanings, how our frustrations, how do not have the final word. That our faith and our community and a confidence in God's future are what will lead us home. Let's hear from Mel's words. Good morning. Uh, my cousin Kevin passed away about two weeks ago after a seven-year-long battle with a cancerous brain tumor. I was fortunate enough to get to attend his memorial service and I think the way that his family presented this uh, journey and the end of his journey was a great reflection and had a lot of connections to me to the, the, the passages that we've been studying recently in Romans. So I wanted to share with you some of the thoughts that they um, put forth and, and uh, process a little bit with you this morning. Um, his brother spoke a lot about how Kevin's faith was central to his life and that as the days got harder, his faith got stronger. They kept, he kept himself focused on God through this entire ordeal, and his main goal was to glorify God every step of the way. Um, they admitted that it was hard for them to say goodbye and to, to live life without Kevin, but then they also mentioned that how could they be mourning when they knew that he had finished his race and he had received his prize and was living living in heaven with God. Then his wife got up and Holly was a huge um, pillar of faith standing there. And I um, am still processing all of the things that, that she said, but a lot of the things that um, she touched on was how, you know, his diagnosis really challenged her faith, but she dug deep and and decided 
and studied and prayed and, and came to the conclusion that she still believed that Jesus was the Son of God and she believed in his faithfulness even in the midst of their, their struggle. Uh, she talked about how their hope was not in Kevin's healing, but it was in the sovereignty of God and the faithfulness of God. They talked about how um, more good came from this diagnosis than bad. And it was very evident that they made every intent to glorify God at every turn. Um, they talked about how the ability to suffer well, uh, I'm going to read it so I don't forget what she said. The, when you suffer well, you show that God is more valuable and trustworthy than wealth, health, and family. And that's something I think I'll remember. That's a statement I'll remember forever. She talked frequently about people calling her strong, and she was very quick to point that strength to Christ. She said, I am not strong, but it is Christ in me that is strong. And Kevin often referenced uh, Hebrews 12 about running his race, and he, he looked at his race as he knew what his prize was, and so he knew what he was racing for, but also that those around him, it was very important that they see how he was running his race and it needed to be in a way that uplifted them um, and and helped them stay strong um, he said that when asked what um, someone should say at his funeral service he told them it's not about the why don't worry about the why just have faith and so i think as I process all of these things, I just, I think about so much about how our journey is not about us. We know we're going to suffer. We're told we're going to suffer many times over. And so that's a given and it's how we suffer and how we deal with the trials of life. I think that set us apart as um, God glorifiers. And so I think if we can avoid that trap, that is the very human why, then we can move past the worldliness of our suffering and focus more on glorifying God, knowing the race that we're on and where that race is taking us and using that suffering to point to him. So I hope in just some small way, uh, that story has helped you and because uh, I know it will continue to help me for years to come. Thank you, Melanie, for that, uh, that telling of that story. And I know how deep the whole loss of your cousin and yet the uh, expression and the witness of his faith and his spouse's faith and the family's faith and the church's faith, faith touched you deeply. And so I repeat this verse from Romans 8.18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed for us. 
church, the clearer you are about God's future glory, the stronger your capacity to deal with your present sufferings. Paul is no stranger to suffering in his list of hurts and pains and tragedies and disappointments could sink a ship. And I know that uh, this hurt and suffering is not far from many of us, many of you who are listening today, whether it's physical health or mental health or traumas that are too numerous to count. This text says it is not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed. And by faith, we choose to believe God's promise. Compare your hardship with God's future and the future wins hands down. And when creation groans and when disaster comes and when mind-numbing incidents hit and when tragedy talks, do not deny them or repress your emotions, but filter them through the perspective of Scripture, through this passage, through God's redemptive lens and plan, through the new heavens and the new earth, through the striking and rich future that God has promised, where the Good Shepherd is reigning as King of Kings, and you son and daughter of God, are with him. Have a great day.